What does it mean to bring our whole selves into the world? To give ourselves the gift of unconditional acceptance? Join me as we learn together. I'm Jorgen Salvis, and this is Unshaming. In the midst of the holiday season, most people are buying presents and checking off their Amazon wish lists. But what's it like to be one of the 34 million Americans who are low income? I spoke with Ziamara Contreras to find out. She's a 25 year old from Chicago. She grew up low income with an immigrant family from Mexico. Her mother was a single mom who worked at McDonald's throughout her childhood and supported three children. In 2017, Ziamara graduated from Northwestern University and accepted a job in product marketing at Google, where she currently works. For the many Americans like Ziamara who do find a way out of being low income, I wondered, what is life like after that? What is that relationship with money feel like? Does the fear of having no money ever leave? I've noticed oftentimes when people share their stories on unshaming, one of the key responses I hear back is, that's so brave. Sometimes I feel confused by that though. Is it really brave? Or is it just simply true? Why is it then when we share a life experience outside of the norm, it has to be brave? Can we eventually create an environment where people don't have to be brave to tell us who they really are? This is the shame of growing up low income. My my shame story definitely, I think, would be one growing up on food stamps, growing up low income. And it wasn't a thing that I was ashamed about when I was growing up because that was how my community was. Right? A lot of people I grew up with were low income. Our parents were service workers, factory workers, had informal jobs, you know, like food vendors on the street, just making money any way they could. So that was normal to us. Like my mom, my mom worked at McDonald's for the majority of my life. And when she did, it wasn't weird to tell my friends that. They're like, oh, cool. Your mom, you know, can give us a free Big Mac. Like it was exciting. Mm. She worked at McDonald's. So I never was ashamed of that growing up. I think the shame started happening when I got to high school because for high school, I went to boarding school. So what was it like actually growing up low income? What, what, was, what was your living situation like? How did you shop for groceries with, I guess your mom was the sole source of income. Is that correct? Yeah, for very, it, it varied, right? It went from first having multiple incomes in the home because we shared homes. So once, I think earlier until maybe I was like seven years old, it was my mom, it was my grandma, it was my uncles, it was whoever lived with us, right? So we lived in a house where people were in and out. So I remember growing up in that house with my mom and my older sister before my little sister existed. And my mom and I and my older sister shared a bed, right? We lived in the same. So we were small at that time. So it was like normal to sleep in the same bed as my mom. Um, And then other people shared other rooms in the house and then eventually when my mom got married who this person would become my stepdad even at that point we were so 
poor, right? So we moved upstairs in the house and we shared a room. We had bunk beds. So my mom and my stepdad slept in the bottom bunk bed. My sister and I slept in the top bunk bed. And then in the other room in the upstairs apartment was my aunt and her husband and her daughter. So it, it, it was always changing where it was like, okay, sometimes you'll share a bed, sometimes you'll share a room. And then eventually when my mom married this man and he did better for himself. I remember moving to our first apartment and it was like a huge deal to not live in a house with like mm. 10 people because <laughs> that's all I, I knew for a while. So yeah, it, it really was, it, it was interesting because I think when you're small like that, it doesn't feel like you're struggling and it just feels like community, right? Like everyone pitching in for the groceries, everyone contributing to making us live in that house. What was the connection between you growing up and then deciding to move across the country to go to boarding school. What what was that like? How did you apply for that? How did you hear about that? That that sounds fancy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very unheard of when I told my friends that I wasn't going to go because they were like, oh, Simata's really smart. Like she's going to go to like the best high school in Chicago. And, you know, I had applied to that high school. And when I told them I wasn't going there, they're like, where are you going then? And I was like, oh, I'm going to this boarding school in Massachusetts. And they're like, why are you going there? Did you like kill somebody? Like you're not a bad person. Like why are they sending you away? Like it was just on mis- like no one understood why I would go away, right? Like it was like, Boarding schools are boot camps. They're not good things. Um, and it was all because of my teacher. She had heard about this program. It was called the Daniel Murphy Scholarship Fund. And she, I think a student, like six years before I arrived, had told her about it. He found out about it on his own. And ever since then, she would like recommend students to apply to this program if she thought that they could be a good fit. She thought, you know, like we're good in academics. So she told my best friend and I to apply and again, like she and I did not know what we were doing. We're just like, okay, Miss Jimenez is telling us to apply to this program. You know, she knows best. And when we got into the program, they're like, you should do the boarding school track because it's also a scholarship program that allows you to go to private schools in the city. But they were like, yeah, you guys would be good fit for boarding school. So again, if you ask my friend, like both of those are just didn't really un- understand what it what they were saying when they were like boarding school. So like we interviewed with these schools, the program told us to do research and I did not know what that meant. When they're like, do research about the school, I was like, what do you mean? So I remember showing up for these interviews. We had like one day full of interviews and talking to these white people, <laughs> not knowing who they were. And they're like, why do you want to attend my school? And almost like bullshitting my answers because I didn't know why I wanted to attend their schools. Like for me, it was like someone told me to do this because they said it was a good opportunity. You know, like I actually had no reason. It wasn't your facilities. It wasn't your academics. It wasn't your sports. Because anything that was not a neighborhood public school in Chicago to me was it, right? Like I didn't know we had options. I didn't know we could mm. ask for more. But it was because of, yeah, it was just because of my teacher that I applied and got into And there was one day where they invited my mom and I to visit the school. They were going to pay for us to fly to Boston and everything. So that was the first time my mom got on a plane. We went to Boston and I remember arriving and we had to call some number for them to pick us up. They drove us to this little town called Concord, Massachusetts. Um, It's a historical town. I think it's where the Battle of Lexington and Concord happened and the the Revolutionary War started. It was so weird. Like it, it lo- looked nothing like I had ever seen. The streets were super curvy. The, s- the stores were small, you know, I'm from the city. So it was odd to be there. And again, 
I, Chicago is a very diverse place, segregated, but still diverse. And this was like just white, 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 white. But this was where the school was. And I remember arriving and my mom being like, oh my God, this school is huge. And they did the tour. I got to take classes and the students were so motivated and so excited to be there. Like everyone wanted to learn. And the classes were like less than 15 students. And I went to a school where we had 34 students in the classroom. So it was exciting to see that I could go to some place like that. And the teachers were called by their first names and the students just left all their stuff everywhere. Like you could just drop your backpack and no one would steal it. And I was shocked by that. So I remember we went to the financial aid office and they explained to us that my mom only had to pay, I think it was maybe like $600. And to her, that was a lot, but the school cost like $52,000 a year. So she could not say no. Um, and we signed right there to attend the school. She's like, we'll figure out how to get those $600. But like, you're going to go to the school. I want to read you an excerpt from the essay that you wrote, because I thought it was so telling of what it was like to sort of be there. The scholarship program tells you you are going to have an opportunity of a lifetime and that you are incredibly privileged, even though you worked hard for this and will work twice as hard for this. The foundation forgets to tell you a couple of things, though. They don't tell you that you shouldn't wear tight jeans and Nikes and hoop earrings. You aren't stylish. In fact, you are quote-unquote ghetto. Make sure to wear a North Face jacket, leggings, and Uggs. Your transformation will be complete when you skim through your freshman yearbook and your friends point out how Hispanic you used to look. What was that transition like, sort of coming from an urban part of Chicago to now this like really fancy boarding school. Yeah, that it made me really sad. I remember when my friend told me that and she was like, Oh, you used to look so Hispanic. And I was like, what? Don't I still look <laughs> like I'm still, I'm still Brown. Like people still think I'm Mexican. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it had to do with me trying to like, change the way I used to dress and I described that outfit right because that was an outfit that was like normal to me to wear Nikes it was like a pride to to wear Nikes um and my hoop earrings were everything like that was super stylish and then I remember coming to school and like seeing that there was a different type of look and I don't think anyone ever tried to make me feel ashamed for how I dressed but when I saw that there was a pattern in how others dress I did feel like left out and out of place or like there were like I'm signaling to people that I wasn't from there, right? So I remember trying to, even though I, I couldn't afford things like North Face, I couldn't afford Uggs. I still tried to wear other things that could make me look more like the other students. So that was changing the type of jeans I wore, the leggings, um, wearing specific type of shoes that weren't gym shoes. I guess like how we say it in Chicago, not wearing baggy clothing, not wearing my hoops. So I did, even if it wasn't like branded items, I did try to change the type of look I had um, because I just felt out of place. And yeah, now when I looked at the yearbook, I did have a different outfit, right? It was like our freshman year photo that we took as a class. I didn't look like that anymore. What were the things that you really enjoyed about that first semester there? The things I enjoyed were definitely like, I'm excited to be in school and to be in a place. Like we had this thing that we said called love of learning. And like the teachers genuinely 
cared about you. Like the teachers genuinely wanted you to learn and they trusted your ability to be responsible. So I remember having so much trust. Like I didn't have to ask to go to the bathroom, which we had to do in my school. Mm. Like you had to plead to use the bathroom. They didn't trust that you could go and not, not you know, misbehave. Um, I remember I had more than 20 minutes for lunch. Like we almost had an hour and we sometimes had this thing called, um, it was like free block or something where your your lunch period might be even longer. It might be an hour and a half, but it was up to you how to use that time, right? Like you can study, you can go to the library, you can just be on campus or go get a coffee at a nearby place. So it was crazy to me that they just let you do that, that I didn't have to eat in 20 minutes, not even just eat, right? Because you had to get in line, eat, get out of line, get to class. So things like that, like their freedom, even though you would think of boarding school would do the opposite, right? Like that you would be, is like locked up in some way, like limited. I actually had more freedom than I've ever experienced in school. So I really enjoyed that. And I just love meeting people, not just from around the country, but I had friends from around the world. So I really felt like I was opening my mind. But at the same time, I was struggling academically because I realized that I, I wasn't the smartest kid in the room anymore that my school didn't really prepare me the way I thought I was prepared. I didn't know how to write essays. I didn't know how to do a lab experiment. And a lot of my friends and classmates went to private schools their whole lives. And if they didn't go to private schools, they went to really good public schools. Like they were from suburbs that were well-funded, well right? So their schools were actually good. So I felt really behind and I felt stupid a lot of the time. So even though there was a lot of excitement and opportunity that first semester, I also felt... I think my whole identity revolved around being smart. And I was like, that's not who I am anymore. So what, what am I? Mm. And it just like missing home, right? Like I, I was really far from home and that was the first time I ever lived away from my family and I was 14. So I think it's even scarier when you're that young. And what was going on at home simultaneously? You're away from school and getting this, amazing education and and sort of having an opportunity that your family may have not even dreamed of for for you and what was going on at the same time back in Chicago yeah there was um there was a lot of things that happened over the four years that I was there I think the first year felt okay right where I think my mom tried to like she never told me if there was anything wrong. Like she did everything to protect my knowledge of that. But it was towards the end of my freshman year, right? When my stepdad asked for the divorce, that dad, there was stuff happening at home. And it wasn't just like a clean, normal divorce. You know, I found out that he was abusive to my mom. So my little sister was seeing that and I wasn't because I, I was protected from it. And then after the aftermath of all of that, right? Like when my mom's safe now and she's away from him and they're trying to like navigate the divorce process, we're struggling financially. Like it was like we were slowly making our way to being middle class to then losing everything at once. So there was a specific moment where that started happening was when my mom and she announced to me, right, that she was divorcing my stepdad. And one, he made it a hell of an experience, but because of that, like, he was like, we're not going to live in this house anymore. So we lost that house and my mom had to quickly find somewhere to live. So she went to this basement apartment that was one little room that was for my little sister. And then it was um, the main living room where she just put the queen bed. And that was for her and for my little sister and her, you know, to 
share that space. But then for me, when I would come home, I would share that bed with her, right? When I was there for vacation. Mm -hmm. So it was again, back to that situation where we don't have our own rooms or just a room with your sibling, you like share a bed. It was when I was coming back from Thanksgiving break, my mom was going to pick me up from the airport. And I remember actually arriving to the to the gate, like to get my suitcase, and I kept calling her, I'm like, why isn't she answering? Like, like, come get me already, right? Like I was really annoyed. Um, so I called my grandmother and I was like, hey, like, do you know where my mom is? She said she wasn't picking me up, but like she doesn't pick up her phone. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like actually, um, let me call you back. So she hangs up and she calls me back like 10 minutes later and she's like, Oh, your mom got in a car accident. Um, she's in the hospital. Um, but I think she should be okay, right? And they explained to me that the car accident didn't seem that bad. She just got hit in the back. But apparently the force was really terrible, um, that it messed up her back, it messed up her knee. And I remember they even released her from the hospital, I think later that night. And she was really stiff, but she was like, oh, they don't know what's wrong with me. But over time, after they were doing more tests, they realized, yeah, she like messed up her back. Like it took her a year to heal enough, right? Like she didn't actually ever heal but heal enough to be able to work. And even then she only could work part-time because if she worked, at, like, she was still working at McDonald's. Um, if she worked more than two days straight, like her body was just done. So she would only work three days a week. So th right there, like we were already, you know, making a little bit of money and then that got cut in half because of her ability to work less. And then that whole year we went without her working. And that at that point, right, she wasn't with my dad anymore, my stepdad. So he wasn't giving us money either. Um, and my mom, I don't like, I think talking to her now, she, she tried so hard to protect me from that. Like she didn't want me to know because, you know, I went home that Thanksgiving. I saw that she was in bad shape and then I left. So I didn't get to see her being in pain. I didn't get to see her trying to figure out how to pay the rent, how to pay for food. There was various points where we were on food stamps and on and off, on and off, right? It depended on the situation. And this was one of the times where she's like, oh my God, you know, we need to get back on them. And she told me that she went to the office to fill out the paperwork to request the food stamps. And they denied her because they could not believe that she was not working and able to survive. So they thought she must be lying. I, I We just don't believe you because how would you you know, exist basically. Like, how would you pay rent? How would you, how, what has she you was paid? paying rent from kind of supplemental income from the family. Yeah. Like every, so she had her very little savings that she had. And then my grandfather realized, you know, that she was struggling. So he would try to help her. So my grandpa this whole time, you know, would give what he could to her. So she was trying to find other ways to fill that source of income that she didn't have. So yeah, they just didn't believe her and they denied her food stamps. But that's how it works, right? Like they don't want to give you anything for free if they don't see you working for it. And it's like, she can't work for it. She's disabled, right? Like she literally can't, she could barely move. But yeah, she, this whole time, right, she just protected me from these things. And I was at school eating, having a shelter, not worrying about if I had a home because I had a home there at least for whatever months I tell until I would visit. I could just focus on school. I didn't have to worry about coming home to something that would stress me out. But she did. And my little sister did. So yeah, it was, it was, I, I think I fall out of guilt when I would come home and realize like 
because I would come home for two weeks at a time or I would come home for the summer. I was like, I'm protected from all of this. And they're the ones who have to face this every day. Um, so I definitely felt a lot of guilt when that was happening. I, I just remember that. So this was the Christmas, my sophomore year. It was my sophomore year. And it was just when all that divorce stuff was happening. And when I found out that, yeah, that my um, stepfather was a domestic abuser. So my mom had connected with an organization that helped women, right, that were struggling with that, um, to advocate for them. Um, and I remember coming home, and I didn't expect much that Christmas, for sure. And, you know, we never expected a lot for Christmas. Like, we, we would get a gift or two, and, mm. you know, it was always something that we needed or something nice, right? My mom always tried. But that was the Christmas where I remember opening these boxes, and all the boxes had receipts attached to them. And I realized they were all from Macy's, too, which I was like, why are these all from Macy's? Like, we don't shop there. It's, like, too expensive. And then my mom told me, she said, hey, yeah, if you need to return any of this, we, we can, you know. Um, that's why we have the receipts there. I was like, what do you mean? She's like, oh, you know, the, the organization gave these to us. And I felt so, we're those people that other people feel bad for and people buy Christmas presents for. Like, we're those kids. And I remember specifically thinking, I'm those kids that my high school's classmates, parents think they're saving. Like, we're the kids that they donate. To were the kids that they do feel good work for. I don't know. It was, it was so off-putting, and this is how low we've gotten. And I didn't feel ashamed of my mom or my family. I just felt, I think, specifically ashamed of myself for for having that experience and being able to go to school and pretend something else, right? Because I didn't tell these things to my classmates. And and that's sort of my next question. So it, it feels like you're at this point living in between two worlds. What was it like going back to boarding school? Were you able to tell anyone or, or was it sort of isolating to be in both situations? I specifically felt, I felt very alone in school and it didn't, it wasn't until my junior year towards the end, honestly, where I was like, I belong here. And I finally chose to talk to a counselor at my school. Again, that was until junior year. And like working through some of that stuff of like, this is okay. But I only had, a, I think there was like two friends that I really decided to finally share like the things I was experiencing because I finally built that trust. But no one else would know this, right? Like no one else in my grade, like we were only a school of 360 students. So you kind of knew everyone's stuff. <laughs> like you, you right. knew all the gossip. Like it was no matter how many secrets you tried to keep, you you wouldn't. So, but I tried really hard to, like no one should know this about me because I didn't want them to know that I fit all the stereotypes that they probably had of me. They lived in very white, wealthy communities in the Boston area or from the other states in the U.S. that they came from. And even the students who weren't white, who came from other countries, again, they were like very elite, wealthy students too. So I'm, I was like the first Mexican a lot of them met. And I was like, I don't need them to 
put two and two together and be like, yep, those Mexicans are poor. Those Mexicans are leeches. Those Mexicans take the resources, just like they say on TV that we do. I feel like looking back at some of my experiences, I also have felt like I needed to be the representative of my community. And I I think back and I'm like, oh my God, that was so much pressure that I put on myself. But I feel like in moments like that, you don't really think of that. You're kind of like, I need to be the very best representative because if I don't excel, no one else will get a chance. I felt that we all had to, like by we, I mean the other students of color, the other scholarship students. I felt like that we had to prove that we deserve to be there so they can continue investing in us. I think every grade had at max like eight black and Latinx students and (laughs) our grades would have maybe like up to like 90 students. So we were the few and it felt like I needed to make a case for us. And I wonder, I mean, I have talked to some of my friends, right? Like, yeah, it was the same for them. Maybe not every single student who was low income or um, who was black or brown felt this, but a lot of us did. And I wonder how that affects, how your upbringing affects your relationship with money now. What does that relationship look like for you? What does it feel like? It took a very long time for me to, to be comfortable spending and to treat myself. I got a job at Google and I remember when I got my offer letter and seeing what my salary was going to be, I was shocked. No one in my family had ever made money like that. My mom, she, McDonald's, like, max, she probably made, like, $23,000 a year. And I don't know how she did it, but we, we had a home, we had food, we had clothes. I can do other things but pay bills. And for sure, I was like, okay, some of this has to go to my mom. Um, Because I want to make sure she was okay and my little sister was okay. And even then I was like, all right, so I got some money. And I was so careful. Like I budgeted every single thing. I still bought the cheapest thing. I was like, I could afford organic food, but I'm still not buying it (laughs) because I feel like I need to save everything. And it was hard to navigate things with finances, right? Like investing in your future with like a retirement plan. I was still hesitant to put in more because I was like, no, 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 no. You never know what's going to happen. I need this money now. Right. So I felt like I had to just keep a savings account that I could always access because who knew what would happen. I had no safety net. There was no one there to catch me. So I needed to build that. Uh, It took me honestly until like maybe six months ago where I was like, it's okay to buy things for myself that are a little expensive. It's okay to travel because I was just always like, you never know what will happen and you're going to regret not saving that money. So that scarcity mindset sort of permeated all the way down to not just your investments in your future, but also the micro decisions you would yeah. take around like food and, and where you were going to do your laundry or is what you're saying? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Even yes, even laundry, even like the brand of soap I bought, like everything was calculated. So what did some of those treat yourself moments look like and feel like for you? 
they were hard. Like, I think it took time to be just like, yeah, just buy this shirt and be happy that I bought it, right? Like, I'm going to look good in this shirt. It would be like, oh, I think I'm, it, it would take me like 45 minutes to be like, okay, I'm going to buy this. It was ridiculous that even if I had extra money to enjoy and to use in other ways outside of paying bills and helping others that I still couldn't just do it for myself. It was my money. I worked for it. And I, it's not a hundred percent resolved either. Like I still have moments where I'm like, like, do you need that? Do you, and I judge others too, right? Like, because people are allowed to use their money however they want. So when I see people who have money using it frivolously, I'm just like, wow, wasteful. How could they? <laughs> and if I'm saying that about them, like, I have to say it about me, right? What do you want people to sort of think about this holiday season? The reason I wanted to do this interview with you was because Christmas in the U.S. is so commercial. It's such a commercialized mm-hmm. season where there's so much overconsumption of products and goods and services and we're so inundated with all of this information and and stuff that we should be buying gift giving and the gift unwrapping being someone who comes from a low income background. What are your thoughts on that? And what do you want other people to know? Even outside of Christmas, I think things like birthdays and anything where you feel like you're supposed to give gifts um, can, can be a really stressful time for some people. And I think, I know for me, I've always been considerate because I was like, yeah, some Christmases you got a great toy or a piece of clothing we wanted and some Christmases it was very simple and we were happy with what we had. And, you know, there was that one Christmas where I was like, someone else gave me gifts that didn't come from my family. So I think when we're thinking about the holidays, we need to be reflective of what we give to others and why. And I guess what other ways can we bring each other joy outside of gift giving because I think one of the reasons I really look forward to Christmas or birthdays is because it's when my family can come together, bond over food, share stories. That's why I value those days. And it's not because of gifts, even as a kid, right? Like, of course I was excited to potentially get a present that I had on my wish list that year. But what I really liked was just being with my cousins because it was one of the few holidays where cousins who usually wouldn't visit would visit. Um, So I I think that's the thing I would leave with people is just like remembering what the holidays in the winter season are really about. My last question is about what you would say to kids from your community that grew up in similar situations that you did and, and communities like that around the U.S., I always think about this because I try to participate in programs that have mentorship or, you know, I'm involved in that nonprofit. They give me my scholarship. I'm involved in another nonprofit that I was part of as a kid to do academic work. So when I talk to them, I'm like, oh, I hope, you know, they ask me for advice or I hope they ask a question where I can be helpful because we're in the same, you know, just being part of that program, you know, you're in the same situation. You're a black student, you're a brown student, you're low income or you're first gen. So we are, we already know that about ourselves, right? Like we're in that situation, but they don't know what they're going to see in the future, right? Like when they're in the academic program or when Mm -hmm. they're in that scholarship program, they don't know what their high school is going to be like yet. They don't know what college is going to be like yet. 
and no one tells you what to expect because one, they don't know themselves, right? If it's like a program coordinator and they didn't go to boarding school, they don't know. Um, if it's not a person of color, they don't know that it can be isolating. So my advice to them, whether it's because they're going to boarding school, they're going to college, or they're going to a space where they traditionally have not existed, is just like take up, take up that space and remind yourself that you do deserve to be there. And make way for others, because I think oftentimes... Out of survival, you might feel like you need to want to assimilate, but then putting other people down. Like I've seen people who've come up from their communities and they're like, all right, I have my home. I have my money. What are you doing? That's your fault. You chose not to do that. You chose to be lazy. Like basically bringing back the words that are used to attack us, right? Like what people say about Mexicans, what people say about Black people, about just not wanting more. When it's not that, it's a systemic issue. So it makes me really sad when I see people who do that, who came up from somewhere, who came from the bottom, and who choose to step on other people instead of uplifting them and making way for them. So for sure, you belong. Take up space and make way for others. Well, thank you, Ziamara. Thank you, Jordan. It was so nice talking to you. I'm Jorgen Salvis, and you've been listening to Unshaming. For more information about anyone featured on the show, follow us on Instagram at Unshaming or visit unshamingpodcast.com. If you liked this episode, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Special thanks to Mirzi for generously providing us with her original music. You can find her wherever you stream. If you have questions or want to tell us what you're unshaming, DM us on Instagram or email us at unshamingpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.